I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking with Shaul Magid, Distinguished Fellow in Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College, about his book, Mir Kahana, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical. One of the most divisive figures in the history of Jewish American political and cultural life in the post-World War II era, Kahana's specter has risen in recent years in relation to what Magid refers to as his neo-Kahanist followers in Israel. However, Magid's focus is on the impact that the late Kahana has had on Jewish American political and cultural thought, which he argues has been overlooked. In this conversation, we discuss a number of issues related to Kahana and his thought, including his criticism of American liberalism from the reactionary right, the founding of the Jewish Defense League, the role of militancy and violence in Kahana's worldview, and much, much more. The conversation will even take us into discussions about black nationalism, the new left of the 1960s and 70s, and the nature of radicalism and revolutionary politics. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now on to the conversation with Shaul Magid, author of Mir Kahana, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical. Before we begin this conversation, a word from our newest sponsor. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was 
in itself an act of black magic in a world devoid of rites of passage Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur if he can survive it back to zero which for me those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside is it even real is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, the Zen of the other, the audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views, Shell McGeed, author of Mer Kahane, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, a book that I've found very interesting. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me. So for my listeners, in case they're unfamiliar with uh, the, the name of Meher Kahane, who was this man? And I guess we're going to have to dissect what his relevance is today because you take a different tact, I think, than a lot of the way Kahane is talked about, especially because you look at him from... Uh, sort of an American perspective rather than his his time in Israel and his influence on Israeli politics and life. Uh, but first, before we get into that aspect, who was this man and what was his sort of thinking and contribution uh, to Jewish culture? Well, Mayor Kahana was um, an American Jew. As a Jew he, was, he was a Jew born in America in the early 1930s. Um, to an Orthodox Jewish family, lived, um, at, grew up and lived in Brooklyn, New York, which was um, at that time and still is um, a, a borough in New York City where there are a large population of um, a large population of, of Jews. And uh, in a certain sense, he grows up like many in his generation, pre-Second World War. Um, living through the Second World War in America and becoming aware of what was going on in terms of the destruction in, in Europe. Uh, a very, very strong Jewish identity, very tied to Jewish practice, studied in, uh, you know, what were then were, were called yeshivot or Orthodox day schools. Um, uh, and in a certain sense, begins his career as a kind of um, middling modern Orthodox rabbi. He holds a couple of pulpits in uh, Queens and New York. Uh, in many cases, these were pulpits that were not Orthodox by definition, but there were many cases where Orthodox rabbis served in these pulpits. And he worked as a sports writer um, for a Brooklyn Daily newspaper, always very, um, very much uh, in favor of Zionism, very strongly a Zionist, being raised in a Zionist family. And sometime in the uh, in the early 1960s, he becomes slowly but surely 
uh, more uh, uh, politicized in the American environment. This, uh, of course, this is civil rights. This is the Cold War. This is the assassination of JFK, the beginning of the counterculture, the emergence of the new left. And he becomes a kind of, um, I would say, journalist activist writing in local New York newspapers about issues that were per, that pertain to the Jews, in particular um, issues regarding Jewish safety in frontier neighborhoods, uh, issues of um, the founding of the PLO, for example, in 1964, and a lot of the beginning of the real strong pushback against the state of Israel. But somehow, um, again, he's still he's still very much kind of on the sidelines. And then in 1968, there was a massive New York City school strike called the Ocean Hill Brownsville District School Strike, which really shut down the New York City public school system, which was the biggest public school system in New York. And part of the outgrowth of that was that there was a, 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 a evidence of anti-Semitism among some of the African-American and Puerto Rican parents who were basically trying to replace the white teachers in their district with African-Americans. And most of the white teachers in that district were Jews, not all, but maybe 60 or 70%. And there's a reason why so many Jews were school teachers at that time, which I can talk about if, if you're interested. And um, the the leader of the, uh, the 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 teachers federation was a person named Albert Shanker who was a Jew actually quite um, uh, an activist Jew he marched with Martin Luther King in in, in Selma nineteen sixty five and the African American and Latino Puerto Rican mostly Puerto Rican parents basically started um, distributing these 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 pamphlets that were against Albert Shanker but against Albert Shanker as a Jew. And Kahana saw that and he saw an opportunity. And he used that to, to found what he called the Jewish Defense League. And the Jewish Defense League was founded in May of 1968. And its initial purpose was to serve as a kind of civil patrol in order to protect Jews from violence against African Americans and Puerto Ricans in those frontier neighborhoods. But it very quickly expanded beyond Brooklyn and chapters opened in Mattapan in Boston, chapters opened in South Philly, chapters opened in Cleveland, different cities around the country. And what began to happen was is that the Jewish Defense League became this kind of signpost for a resurgence of Jewish pride and Jewish defense, in a sense, that Jews should not, you know, cower from the, 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 um, the threats of violence against them, but that they should fight back. And they should fight back if necessary with violence. And so in a way, he's it's an intervention into the American counterculture because this was a time of militancy more general. You have the Black Panthers, you have the Young Lords, you have a number of different organizations that are these militant organizations on the left. And Kahana is trying to, in a sense, mirroring that with the development of a Jewish militant organization that he considers to be part of a kind of reactionary, not, not a left-wing um, movement. And this, in a certain sense, on the one hand, makes Jews feel very proud, but also makes Jews feel very nervous. Because the basic assumption was, certainly in the American Jewish establishment of the 1960s, that Jews were not a violent people, Jews were not a rebellious people, Jews wanted to accommodate, they wanted to assimilate, they wanted to acculturate, they wanted to become a part of American society. And Kahana is basically pushing back and say, you're being threatened. Your lives are being threatened, your survival is being threatened, your families are being threatened. Don't cower. Don't depend on the government. 
take this into your own hands and fight back. And so in a certain sense, what you really see is a kind of generational shift where a lot of people who are of the older generation were very nervous about that. Many of them had experiences in Europe. Many of them were Holocaust survivors. And many of the younger generation, that are people that were brought up in the new left in the 1960s, really kind of became attracted to this notion of what Kahana called Jewish power, the way he kind of mirrored the notion of black power. And this, and, and therefore he, he becomes a lightning rod in the late 1960s and early 1970s for that kind of activism. So out of curiosity, what led you to basically write what, it, what is a cultural biography of Kahane? Because he is a very divisive figure. You know, I, I, I think you talk about that a great deal in the book's introduction. I think there's people that they, they hear Kahane mentioned and they view him as you know, an embarrassment. And then there's other people that will say, as you point out in the book, uh, I, oh, I, I think Connie was right. He just should have said it nicer. Uh, right. So what led you to uh, write about him? Well, you know, there's uh, one of the reasons is that I, I wrote a book in 2015 called American Post Judaism. And in that book, it's really about looking at contemporary Jewish life and identity in a post ethnic America. And I have a chapter on the Holocaust. And in that chapter, I, I spend a little bit of time writing about Mayor Kahana because he writes a book in 1971 called Never Again, which is his most popular book, hold on, sold 100,000 copies in the first year of its publication. And it was basically the notion of never again, of course, never again to the Jews, never again will the Jews go like sheep to the slaughter in, in, in the Holocaust. So the Holocaust actually serves as a real shadow over Kahana's entire worldview. And after I wrote that, that, that piece of that chapter, I suddenly recognized that if you look at the kind of histories and studies of post-war American Jewry, Kahana is really almost never included. He's never included in syllabi that are being taught in universities. He's never included in historical studies. In other words, there seemed to be this attempt uh, whether it was intentional or not, I don't know, but an attempt to erase Kahana from the American Jewish story. And I thought that that was a big mistake because I think he played an incredibly important role. I think he was very divisive, but he forced American Jews to think more carefully about the decisions they were making. Now, in Israel, of course, he becomes a much more popular figure because he gets elected to, as a member of the Israeli parliament, and then he's removed from the parliament in this very dramatic racism law where the Israeli government decided that his party was racist. So you, you, you would never write a history of uh, the state of Israel without writing about Mayor Kahana. But somehow American Jewish historians and others think that you can write about American Jewry without writing about American Kahana. And I think, I thought that was a, that was a gaping hole. And, and I wanted to fill that hole by saying that in fact, this is a person not only who had a very significant impact on the American Jewish mindset at that time, but as I argue in the book throughout, I think that in some way, part of his worldview has really sunk deep into the American subconscious and continues to exist today. Not his militarism, right? Because that time is past. It's past in America, although now we're seeing with Black Lives Matter protests with January 6th, right? We're seeing the rise of militarism again, which is an interesting question in terms of what that means. But in general, um, it, what interested me was not his tactics, what interested me was his worldview and the way in which his worldview, while it seemed to be 
in some way anathema to American Jews is actually very much a part of the way they think about the world. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Because I, I think that's a, an interesting way to look at uh, Kahana, because as I said, we, we talk about Kahana a, a lot now in relation to Israel. And I, I would say that there's, you know, talk of, of neo-Kahanists. Right. Um, and I, I think the neo is important there and we can get into that. But looking at him in the American context, what do you think people are missing when they don't look at that? And especially how it's sort of seeped into uh, the culture. Well, Kahana was, you know, interestingly, um, a kind of weather vane in a certain way. And by that, I mean, he was really plugging into certain things that were not necessarily happening in his time in, in a way that most American Jews were paying attention to, but things that started to happen decades afterward that, um, that are now very important to American Jews. For example, the question of anti-Semitism and particularly anti-Semitism on the left was a very important issue for Kahana. I mean, that was the impetus to start the Jewish Defense League in 1968 because of the anti-Semitism in the African-American community around the school strike. Most Americans um, in the 1960s were more concerned about anti-Semitism on the right, you know, things like the Ku Klux Klan or the John Birch Society or other forms of, of anti-Semitism as they existed throughout the modern period, whereas anti-Semitism on the left was a little bit more difficult to kind of pinpoint. And I think Kahana was basically making the claim that anti-Semitism on the right is really kind of stock and trade anti-Semitism and it will always exist. The anti-Semitism on the left, he felt, was actually more dangerous. And in part, it was more dangerous because it was also focused on um, on anti-Israelism, which is something that's now become really, in a certain sense, the major topic of uh, arguably one of the major topics of American Jewry is really trying to navigate between anti-Semitism and anti-Israelism or anti-Zionism. And this is something that Kahana saw was, was happening already in the 1960s. The second thing is that Kahana offered American Jews a very significant critique of liberalism and liberalism was as you know as 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 um as you know people like norman Potharitz would say uh, the editor of commentary magazine um liberalism was the civil religion of american jews american jews voted democrat in large large numbers most american jews consider themselves liberals most american jews still consider themselves liberals and they understood that liberalism was really the pathway into American society and into the acceptance of American society. And Kahana felt that that was a ruse, that liberalism was going to ultimately undermine American Jews because it was, was going to give them no reason to remain Jews. It's going to give them no reason to be Jewish. So in a certain way, Kahana is offering a critique of liberalism in a way that's not completely different than the way that Malcolm X criticized Martin Luther King's integrationism. Right. So King was basically saying the way for African-Americans to enter into American society, the way to achieve equality is through integration. The famous speech that he makes on the uh, on the in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Memorial about about, you know, 
black children and white children sitting together, holding hands together, there's no shape of integration. Malcolm X comes in and says, no, 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 no. Integration is not the answer. Integration will destroy the black person. Won't, it, won't bring them, it won't bring them to acceptance. Rather, we really have to have a certain kind of separatism. And Kahana was really kind of advocating, to some degree, a kind of Jewish separatism that Jews should should it's not that you shouldn't be a part of American society, but they should watch out for themselves, they should live amongst themselves, they should marry each other, they should continue to perpetuate a society that is both part of and yet not a part of uh, of the American liberal system. And I think that in the 2000s, 2020s now, I think that there is more of a sympathetic ear of increasing numbers of Americans, even though American Jews still remain mostly liberal, an increasing number who are less and less confident that liberalism is really the answer. And you see that in the rise of neoconservatism in the 1970s, 1980s. You could see it in the move of traditional Jews toward the Republican Party, toward supporting Trump. In other words, the, 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 the basic assumption that liberalism is the best political ideology for American Jews is no longer a consensus the way that it used to be. And Kahana was talking about that back in the 1960s when it was fully a consensus. So that's another reason I think that, that, that Kahana is important. Not to say that these neoconservative Jews or reactionary Jews or Trumpist Jews are Kahanis, they're not really Kahanis, but I think that they're plugging into a certain kind of sentiment that liberalism is a dangerous ideology for the American Jew. And you can see this in um, Mark Levin, Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, like a whole series of social media pundits uh, who are not only Jews by birth, but Jews by identification who are now becoming prominent figures within the more reactionary Republican Party. I was going to ask, can you even see it with, um, do, do you see any uh, ways that Kahana is maybe uh, not necessarily even directly, but, but indirectly influenced, I mean, figures that are well known, like, like Barry Weiss and whatnot? Well, that's an interesting question because you have then you, you have other figures like I mentioned, you know, Levin and Prager and Shapiro and there are others. And then you have figures like Barry Weiss or Batya Sargon Unger who really identify as liberals. I mean, they do identify as liberals and yet they are uh, resisting what they consider to be, the, you know, for lack of a better term, woke progressivism. Right. So this is this kind of a, a liberal pushback against progressivism. Now, whether in fact they are liberals or not, that's a question that everybody will have to like read their work and decide. But they certainly identify as part of the liberal faction, the liberal faction that has in a certain sense lost its, its constituency to a certain kind of wokeness. That, um, that has become part of the progressive movement, which manifests itself in Black Lives Matter, which eventually, according to them, ultimately is fed on a certain kind of anti-Israelism, which is really a guise for anti-Semitism. So I really don't think that people like that are, 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 in, are, are influenced by Kahana, although I think that there is a way in which they're plugging into certain things that Kahana was talking about decades before without really 
um, without really knowing it. But again, Kahana is somebody who would have never identified as a liberal, right? I mean, he was clearly an anti-liberal. And in that sense, I don't think that they really fit that bill. Also, I know most of the book focuses on the U.S. end of all of this, but uh, just to speak about uh, Israel and, and these sort of uh, neo-Kahanist figures, uh, I've heard you ref- use that term neo-Kahanist right. as opposed to just Kahanist. Maybe you could explain that a little bit for my listeners. So there are Israeli politicians that sit in the Israeli parliament today and other and many others who are part of the religious Zionist establishment who see themselves as being followers of uh, or inheritors of the kind of legacy of Mayor Kahana. The reason why I don't think they're Kahanists is that the, 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 the political leaders today that identify with Kahana, for the most part, there are some exceptions, but for the most part are individuals who grew up in the national religious Zionist movement that was very strongly influenced by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who was the chief rabbi of Palestine until 1936, and then later his son, Svihu de Cook, who became the kind of architect of the settler movement in the late 1960s and 1970s, 1980s. There's a big difference between the Cooks and Kahana. And and the, the main difference is that the Cooks are, in a certain sense, messianic romanticists. In other words, they understand that Zionism is the unfolding of some kind of messianic era, and that the secular state, the secular state is itself a vehicle for the messianic project. And so they don't only accept the secular state, but they embrace the secular state. And Svi Yehuda Cook would even go as far to say is that the secular state itself is holy because it's part of this part of this project. Kahana gave no real value to the secular Israeli state. Kahana, in a sense, was not really a messianist in, 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 in a romantic sense. He believed that God gave the land to the Jewish people. He believed that the Jewish people had the right to the land, exclusive right to the land. He believed in power. He believed in conquest. He believed in control, and he believed in survival. He's very much a kind of materialist and not really a spiritualist. So I think a lot of the people today who identify with Kahana in, in, in Israel are a certain in a certain way, an amalgam of the cookie and romanticism and the and the Kahanist pragmatism. And you really see the Kahanism of these people more in terms of tactics rather than in terms of ideology. If you look at the ideology of some of these Kahanists, so-called Kahanists in Israel today, they're actually much more in line with the romantic mysticism of Rev. Cook. If you look at the tactics some of them use, violence, for example, violence against the Palestinian population, that those are not cooking and taxes because both cooks were actually quite against the use of violence. Those are Kahanist tactics. So that's why it's a kind of tactical Kahanism and ideological cookism. That's what I'm calling neo-Kahanist. It's interesting too, because I think in some ways Kahana was a, a fish out of water in Israel. I mean, he he's very he's very American, even within that context. Right. And, and I think that's why Kahana, as a, fi- as a public figure, Kahana was really a failure in Israel. And the reason that he was a failure in Israel 
was because he was constantly thinking in American categories. He was constantly thinking in the kind of culture war, race war categories of the 1960s and trying to transplant that onto Israel. And Israel, of course, the question of race very much exists, but it's a much more complicated story. It's really triangulated not only between black and white we have in America or, you know, black, Hispanic and white in America. It's really um, Jews from Arab lands, Arabs, and Ashkenazi Jews who are really running the government. So you have this strange kind of triangulation that Kahana was never really able to navigate. So he did get a lot of the Jews from Arab lands known as Mizrahim. He did get a lot of those Jews to be part of his base because a lot of those Jews actually had strong sense of animus toward the Arabs because of the way they were treated when they were living in Morocco or in Egypt or in Iraq or places like that. Um, and yet, and yet the Arab Jews were also very, very um, angry at what they felt was the way they were being treated by the, uh, by the Ashkenazi elite, right? So there was a more complex story of race in Israel that Kahana was never really able to figure out. And, and he never was able to kind of translate his Americanism into, his, into Israel, which is why I think he fails. However, a homegrown movement of native-born Israelis who were very deeply engaged in the Israeli cultural project, they used Kahana, they adopted him and accommodated him, and they, in a sense, Israelized him. And that's really what you see in the Kahanist movement. So I think it's important to make a distinction, not only between Kahanism and Neo-Kahanism, but between Kahana, the person, and the Israeli um, uh, the Israelis who adopted his basic worldview, but translated into a much more native Israeli idiom. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance check it out folks i wrote the big balloon a love story a memoir collage during quarantine my legs swelled up at the computer i took pictures of objects in my house each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall it's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astro Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here 
but there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust, a stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. Do you think there's even a sort of complexity uh, to his relationship with uh, the idea of Zionism? Because I, I think in some ways he's almost uh, like a counter-Zionist at times. He has a very odd relationship to it all. Well, I think um, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Kahana strongly identified with Zionism, but but it was a Zionism that was very particular to him and to a particular brand of Zionism that was influenced by the revisionist movement and Zev Jabotinsky. And Kahana began to lose uh, faith in Zionism in the 1980s because he began to see that Zionism was capitulating to a certain kind of liberal accommodationist mindset and was unwilling to own um, its abnormal status. So, you know, part of the project of Zionism writ large is the normalization of the Jews. That is that Jews saw themselves and were seen by others. And Stalin famously made this, this claim that, oh, the Jews are not a people because a people has to have a language and a people has to have a land. The Jews don't have a language and the Jews don't have a land. And the Zionists kind of agreed with that. So they developed the language, the new Hebrew language, and they vied for, um, you know, sovereignty in the land. So that was supposed to be the normalization of the Jew, to be part of the world community, to be a part of the member, a member state in the United Nations. Kahana's view of Zionism was about owning the abnormality of the Jewish state. The Jewish state was not a normal state. It should not be a normal state because other states are born from a history of peoples who live amongst, the, amongst themselves and develop a sense of national identity. For Kahana, the Jewish state is really a divine gift. And so it doesn't have to capitulate to the norms of the international community. In a sense, Zionism was about the increased abnormality of the Jew. And that's why Kahana, although he was a big fan of democracy and a big fan of American democracy, and he thought America was the best country for the Jews that had ever existed in the history of the Jews, Democracy could never exist in Israel, and democracy could never exist in Israel because Israel is a Jewish state. So when Israel in 1985 adds to its Declaration of Independence or to its basic law that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state, people often think that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state was part of the Declaration of Independence in 1947. It really wasn't. It was added on in part to the basic law later on. Kahana says, no, 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 Israel cannot be a Jewish and democratic state. It could be a Jewish state or it can be a democratic state. And there were very few people in the 19, at that time that were actually saying that on the right. There were people on the far left that were saying, yes, of course, Israel to be a democracy, it has to have, the Arabs have to have equal rights to the Jews. But if Arabs have equal rights to the Jews, then what makes it a Jewish state? And Kahana would say, yes, actually, that's true. Therefore, Israel shouldn't be a democracy because it can't be a democracy because it's an abnormal state. So what ends up happening is that as time goes on and Kahana starts to see that Israel is moving more in a direction of um, 
of 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 being a more of a full-fledged democracy and part of that is the possibility of relinquishing land and establishing a palestinian state solving that problem solving that demographic problem kahana begins to lose faith in zionism and he basically says zionism is a kind of failed hellenistic project and zionism is becoming no better than you know than 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 uh the jewish established the Jewish establishment in the diaspora. And so I think he kind of, you know, I use this language and I know a lot of people who have read the book have kind of pushed back on this. He becomes a kind of militant post-Zionist. He basically sees Zionism as a failure because it's not adopting his anti-normalization, his, I'm sorry, abnormalization motif. Going back to this issue of uh, Kahane and the, uh, 1960s, the 1970s, the counterculture. Uh, it's really interesting because I think you mentioned in the book that Abby Hoffman of the Yippies actually commented on Kahana once by saying, uh, you know, I agree with his tactics, but not his goals. And I think in a lot of ways that underlines that there's a, a really interesting relationship between Kahane and the ca- counterculture of that era. Could you delve into that a bit more? Yeah, I, you know, I make this argument too, and this is some, you know, other people have kind of pushed back on this and criticized this. I, I think in general, we find that radical movements that are opposed in terms of what they seek to achieve often share common cause in how they seek to achieve it. And you could see that in a number of ways. You could see it in that both the radical left and the radical right have the status quo or view the status quo, in many cases, the status quo is liberalism in America as the enemy. And that in fact, liberalism seeks to achieve certain goals, but the way it seeks to achieve it really only perpetuates the opposite. So for example, radical leftists will say, Yes, of course, liberalism wants to achieve equality, but the way way it seeks to achieve it by incremental change, by working within the system, in fact, only perpetuates and exacerbates inequality, right? So that the radical leftists will say some kind of more deeply rooted intervention is required in order to be able to achieve those goals. One example of that, I think, that we can see in our time is the 2010 Occupy movement. And, and, and the notion of economic distribution and the emergence of democratic socialism as a proximate movement within, a proximate radical movement within our society, which basically said, no, 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 the liberal state, the neoliberal state is not going to achieve what it even claims that it wants to achieve. It really, you know, the people in power are going to remain in power and the mechanisms of power are going to be used in to, to, to ensure that. So what we have to do is we have to intervene and try to undermine the basic mechanisms of power in order to be able to achieve the goals that liberalism claims that it wants to achieve. So Kahana basically is making the same claim on the right. He's saying, oh, liberalism is saying, we want to embrace the Jews. We want the Jews to be a part of our society. We want to integrate the Jews. When in fact, what Kahana is saying, no, liberalism actually wants the Jews to disappear. They're they're creating rubrics and contexts whereby the Jew will feel so much a part of the society that they live in, that they will no longer have any actually reasons for difference. So in, in other words, I, I guess what you're saying is that uh, he viewed liberalism almost as a, a project that would 
try to assimilate Jewish people and, you know, actually take away their cultural identity. Yes, even though even though liberalism may not have that in mind, who, whatever that means, right? The the very project of liberalism sets the conditions for that to happen, and I, I think that's basically what he's trying to say. And you know, the situation with the Jews and liberalism, and let's say blacks and liberalism, is very different, right? Because blacks are not going to disappear because their difference is much more marked in a physical way. Whereas the Jew could conceivably just disappear, right? Because they're basically white passing. So they just have to change their names and get a nose job and straighten their hair, which of course we know in the 1950s and 1960s, Jews were doing in great numbers in order to become like undetectable in a sense, that was going to happen. That was, that was his fear. So in a way, um, radicalism is a, a, a way of, of, of engaging in a, a deeply rooted intervention into a social system that very often, not always, but very often has to hold open the possibility for violence. And, you know, somebody asked me in a, in a, um, in a podcast, why couldn't, he's, this is an Orthodox rabbi, a very prominent Orthodox rabbi, no, in no way a Kahanist, very much a liberal, said, I don't know why Kahana couldn't just give up on violence because he really had some very good ideas. And my response to him was, he couldn't give up on violence because Kahana saw himself as a revolutionary. The same way that Fred Hampton saw himself as a revolutionary, the same the same way that that, you know, Huey Newton saw himself as a revolutionary. These people wanted to or Stokely Carmichael, these people wanted to enact radical change and radical change has to sometimes include violence. So he couldn't give up violence because by giving up violence, he would be giving up his revolutionary status, which I don't think he really wanted to do. So that gets into something I wanted to touch on more this it's interesting because I think Kahane uh really comes into conflict over this issue of anti-semitism amongst black Americans and at the same time you can also see parallels uh between someone like him and the figures you mentioned or say Malcolm X so there's a weird thing going on when it comes to his relationship with Black America and Black thinkers and, and whatnot. Yeah, very much so. I mean, he has a chapter in his book, um, The Story of the Jewish Defense League, which was written in 1975. He has a chapter called Jewish Panthers. And 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 he, 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 he was fully willing to own the very notion of the Black Panthers as a an identitarian movement that sought for the well-being and the betterment and the protection of its people against the what they perceived as the enemy of white America. And Kahana was basically said, oh, I despise them because I think they're anti-Semites, but I respect them because they're willing to put their lives on the line for the, for the sake of their people. And so I think that there is, there is a very complicated relationship between um, the black nationalist movements of that time and Kahana's perspective. And he intentionally adopts, right? He has this line of Jewish is beautiful from black is beautiful, Jewish Panthers from black Panthers, right? He's very open about it. 
saying, yeah, we can we can accommodate that because in a certain sense, we're out for the survival and our protection of our people the same way that they are. The fact that they don't like us because they think we're white or the fact that they think that we're, you know, oppressing Palestinians in Israel, that for him is a separate matter. You know, they, they can they can fight and argue about that. But in terms of what they each saw as the real enemy, Right. I think they shared a great deal. Now, in regards to the Jewish Defense League, what is the broader story of Kahane in the Jewish Defense League? Because he's not he's not the only person in that story of the Jewish Defense League. And I think he drifts from them in some ways. Could you talk about that? Well, you know, it's an interesting story because you're talking about somebody who I argue anyway in the book has a very profound impact on 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 the American sub on the American Jewish subconscious. But the story is very, very short. He founds the Jewish Defense League in 1968, May of 1968. He starts to write in a Jewish periodical, the Jewish press a little bit earlier, 1964, 1965, but he's really kind of a sideliner. So 1968, he hits the pages of the New York Times. May of 1968. By September of 1971, he immigrates to Israel. So the entire story of Kana, really the entire story of the formative period of the Jewish Fence League is three years. That's it. 1968 to 1971. Now, those were three very intense years in America, right? Assassination of King, assassination of Kennedy, Kent State, right? The Weather Underground. I mean, a lot of things happen. Um, between 1968 and 1971. Now, he does he does come back to America all the time once he's living in Israel, he's spending about half his time in the US and half his time in, in, in Israel. But I think that you're right. By the time you get to like 1972, certainly 1973, he loses control of the Jewish Defense League simply because he's not there. He's not living there. So the Jewish Defense League, which was a very highly charged ideological movement really descends by 1972 and 1973 into a kind of street gang because there's nobody that's really behind it there are there's Bertrand Zweibon and there's Marty Dolgan there are middle-aged men who are in who are there who are in a certain sense trying to keep charge but basically it's a group of teenagers and there's an internal document that I talk about in the book that Kahana wrote, uh, that Kahana wrote to the JDL, I think he gave it as a talk when he came back to visit them in 1974, uh, just a, a scathing critique in terms of use of vulgar language and, 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 and street violence and vulgarity. In other words, he basically says, you guys have lost the whole meaning of what I tried to create. I tried to create a, 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 a society that was going to promote Jewish pride, and you've basically become a Jewish embarrassment. That's kind of what he says. And at that point, by 72, 73, the JDL starts to really become a shadow of itself. And Kahana gives up on it because Kahana's already like establishing his political career in Israel. He's already moved on in many ways. I think what's really interesting about all of this, and it's something we've circled around, but in the title of your book, I think it's very interesting the use of that word radical because, you know, Kahana would call himself radical, but I think a lot of people, uh, they hear radical and they think, um, oh, that, you know, radical means left wing. Um, and it's it's interesting, too, because what we were getting at earlier was in ways uh, Connie is playing off the energy of the uh, 
left counterculture and that sort of revolutionary spirit, but he's doing it for, I guess, reactionary ends that are very critical of liberalism. Could you speak more to that? Well, I think one of the interesting things about that is that, and, and I, and I, I, you know, Kahana does identify as a radical. He says, he says at one point, I quoted in the in the book in the 1980s in a talk that he gives. He says, "I want, I want to produce a Jewish radical. I just want them to have something to be radical about." And I think, in a certain sense, that's very important because when we think of the term radical, now. Again, we're post-January 6th, but let's say before January 6th. When we think of the term radical, we think of the left, and we also think of something that's pretty negative. Oh, you're too radical. This person is a radical, right? Whereas I think we have to recognize in the 1960s, radical was a badge of honor. People wanted to be called radicals. People identified as radicals. Being a radical was something that was good. It was fighting against the injustice of the status quo. When does radical turn from being an honorific to being something negative? Well, it's a good question. I think one could probably pinpoint it sometime around the Reagan administration, right? I think that Reaganism, in a certain sense, radicalism goes underground to some degree, and being called a radical is being is being is 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 being um, criticized. Now, again. I think the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys would consider themselves radicals. I think they would own that radicalism. So I think you do see an emergence of a reactionary radicalism. And I think the Black Lives Matter people would consider themselves radicals. And I think the Occupy movement would consider itself radical. So I think that we, what, we, what we're experiencing in the last 10 years, I think from 2010, is the reemergence of American radicalism. But, you know, I think it's also important to note, right, that the very founding of this country was made by radicals, right? The Revolutionary War, you know, it's very funny. I always tell my students this all the time. The Revolutionary War, we have to remember, was a revolution. And not only was it a revolution, it was a violent revolution. And so this country was founded by radicals. It was founded by radical Protestants. It was by founded by radical freedom fighters. It was founded through a, 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 a violent insurgence against the powers of government. Now, I'm not advocating that, obviously, but I'm just saying when you put it in context, when you think about America, America is a country, as most countries are born through radicalism. And Zionism was a radical movement too. So I think when we think, you know, there's this fear and anxiety that often comes into our consciousness when we think about radicalism and violence and so on. And when you see it in a larger context, it's something that has been part and parcel of this country since its founding. And it moves back and forth, right and left, over above ground, underground, when the status quo becomes intolerable, whether it's slave revolts like Nat Turner, whether it's the, the, the you know, Harry Tubman and the Underground Railroad, whether it's the, the bus boycott in Montgomery in 1955, whether it's the Freedom Riders, right? Now, those weren't violent movements for sure, but they were radical movements, right? They were, they were movements of civil disobedience against the law, decidedly against the law. So I think that Kahana really has to be seen as part of the history of American radicalism. Yeah, and it's very interesting to me because 
when I think about it, I, I do think people don't understand at times that uh, there are reactionary radicals and there's also these um, sort of left radicals. I mean, the way I would put it on is that on one hand, you have maybe an Abby Hoffman and then on the other, you have uh, a Kahane. And I mean, you even see it in um, in black politics. On one hand, you have a Fred Hampton. On another hand, you have uh, a figure like Louis Farrakhan, who I would say is is more reactionary. So I, I think you're making a very important point there. Right, right. I, I mean, that that's very important in terms of like, you know, Fred Hampton and Farrakhan, because Farrakhan is, you know, one of the things that people, I think, miss about Farrakhan, he's not a leftist, right? Farrakhan is a real reactionary, a cultural reactionary, a religious reactionary, right? Now, he may be part of the left in some way because he's part of the the black movement, but he is certainly not a leftist the way that um, the way that Malcolm X was, the way that Fred Hampton was, the way that Stokey Carmichael was, the way that Angela Davis is, right? So you know the African American movement is is really divided the way most movements are divided, and and while there's overlap, I think it's interesting to note, for example. Um, if we want to look at you know where we are today, that um, it is arguably the case, and I'm sure people could you know come on your show and basically tell me how I'm wrong here, that the Black Lives Matter movement is more Malcolm than it is Martin. I mean, especially where where you know where Martin Luther King Day, right? I think that Malcolm X has experienced a resurgence among African Americans after George Floyd, after Ferguson, because in a certain sense it becomes um, a natural way of resistance to uh, protest against policemen killing your kids. I mean, in a certain way, in a certain sense, Martin doesn't really have a great answer for that, whereas Malcolm does. Now, again, I think that we're living in a Malcolm-Martin breach in a certain sense, but still, if you look at some of the real... um, a prominent um, critical race theorists and African-American theologians, James Cone, for example, who just passed away, was a great African-American theologian, and, 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 and Charles Mills and others. There's a real sympathy for Malcolm X. Right. There's a real sympathy for Malcolm X. And, you know, I think one, you know, it, it just in 2020, 2021, the two, two films that came out, first of all, The Black Klansman is one film. Um, a, a Night in Miami is another film, which featured Malcolm X. And then the Ken Burns Muhammad Ali story, which is a fascinating story about the nation of Islam and about the relationship between Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali and the relationship between Elijah Muhammad and Muhammad Ali. These are interesting stories that are now being told of 50 years ago when um, the, the, when, before the lionization of Martin Luther King as the great American African the great African American hero, which of course he is. And it's a much complicated story, and I think a much more complicated story. I think Black Lives Matter is telling is telling that story in, in very interesting ways. Before we close out, there were just maybe one more or two more things I wanted to cover. Uh, one line that really stood out to me, uh, and it, it shows up early in the book, uh, is at the beginning in the introduction. Uh, you write that uh, he is in Kahane was a powerful critic of hypocrisy, even as his life itself a study in hypocrisy. Maybe you could delve into that more because I think there are a lot of contradictions at work in Kahane. Right. 
Right. Look, as as a, as a person, as a figure, he is a study in hypocrisy. As a thinker, I think he is fairly consistent. And I'll explain what I mean. I think that one of the critiques of liberalism from the left and from the right is that liberalism is always caught in its own entanglement of hypocrisy, that it tries to solve problems by creating mechanisms that only perpetuate them. Now, we can go into great detail and we can talk about the history of liberalism and why that is and if that is. And I think that Kahana had a certain kind of um, laser beam that was able to to show to 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 to, to bring out the um, the hypocri- the hypocritical nature of liberalism in general. As a figure, he was incredibly undisciplined, personally and intellectually undisciplined. He was a person who for example, is writing against intermarriage and against inter, you know, inter-ethnic or inter-religious dating, but he himself has a non-Jewish mistress, right? He's involved in certain kinds of clandestine organizations in Washington, D.C., whether he worked for the CIA or not, that's a matter of dispute, but he certainly was involved in nefarious types of behaviors, personal behaviors, but also political behaviors that in a certain sense just showed there's a, there was a deep sense of, I would say, um, a, a combination of megalomania and weakness. And I think you could see that in other figures like Bill Clinton. Same kind of thing. There's that combination of megalomania and weakness, a powerful sense of charisma, and yet a deeply dark underside. You could see it in people like Mahatma Gandhi as well. And you can even see it in Martin Luther King and all of his sexual indiscretions that end up coming at Larry. These are complicated people who are very, very powerful, have very, very strong personalities, but have very, very deep and strong dark sides as well. And Kahana was no different. I think also Kahana has always interested me because regardless of what one thinks of his um, views and his his sort of his worldview, I think it's undeniable that he was an extremely charismatic speaker. And I, I think we live in an age where we have to think more about, you know, the, the influence of charismatic speakers. Yeah, he was a charismatic speaker, but, but more than that, or as much as that, he had a particular message. And his message was, Jews need to be afraid. And they need to learn how to protect themselves. And that message resonated very, very strongly at the time when he came into the public, public eye. There was a real sense, remember, we're talking about the late 60s, right? There's a real sense that the country was unraveling. The race wars, the culture wars, the Watts riots in 65. I mean, it was just like almost month by month by month by month, things were happening. The Vietnam War, the invasion of Cambodia, the student protests, the takeovers of the universities, people were really actually worried that American democracy was unraveling the way that they're worried that American democracy is unraveling now in a certain sense. And I think um, we have to remember also, this is only two decades after the end of the Second World War. So you're talking about Kahana's listeners 
experienced that genocide either firsthand or second or third hand, right? So there was a deep trauma that existed. And I think he just hit a very particular chord with a a generation of young people, young Jews, because that was his base, right? The generation of young Jews who were fully American, that they felt fully American, and yet they were very, very angry at the, their parents, many of whom were immigrants who didn't want to make trouble, right? And, in, you know, so Connell tells this joke, since we're at the end, Connell tells this joke, he says, it's like, there are two Jews on a firing squad, and they're both blindfolded, and they're about to be shot. And one of them yells out to the, to the, to the, to the, to the firing squad, my blindfold is too tight. And the other one says to him, don't make trouble, right? That was, that was what he considered to be the kind of epitome of the American Jew at that time. And so you can imagine many of these young Jews who were radicalized in the new left in the 60s, they were just able to translate their radicalism into a kind of identity politics of reowning their Jewishness. It's interesting to me too, and I, I promise we'll wrap up after this, but I was talking to a, a listener of my show and I, I had explained to them that I was having you on to talk about Conan and they said something very interesting to me. They said, you know, I engaged with Kahana when I was younger and Kahana is actually the reason I became um, less radical on a lot of issues or I moderate it. Uh, do you think Kahana may have had that effect on some people as well, forcing people to grapple with a lot of issues and saying, hey, this is why I disagree with Kahana? Right. I think that happened, but I think this is true of radicalism more generally. In other words, radicalism almost always implodes because it almost always overextends itself. And you see that with the SDS and the Weather Underground. You could see that with with the JDL and the Seoul Yurok bombing where, where a woman was killed. You can see that in the way in which the Black Panthers fell apart. That's kind of the nature of radicalism. It burns itself out. And that many people who are refugees from those radical movements start to move more toward the middle, even though they were, they were inspired by the radicalism. But the question that we need to ask is, after radicalism burns itself out and undermines itself, and we look back, has it actually changed anything? And I think in some ways the answer is often yes. That Part of, the, part of the failure of radicalism is that it has to go too far in order to be able to facilitate real change. But then it, 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 it's almost like a Harry Carey story, right? It almost has to kill itself in order to be able to accomplish what it wants to accomplish. Now, it doesn't ultimately accomplish the revolution. It doesn't accomplish the revolution, but it certainly moves the chains down the field and things are a little bit different now than they were before. So when you think about the Black Power Movement and the Black Panthers, did they change something in America on the question of race? I think they certainly did. Did Malcolm X really have a positive impact on Black identity and Black culture? I think he definitely did. But again, it ends up, it ends up, uh, it ends up self-destructing. What, out of curiosity, has the reaction been to your book? Because I don't, it's interesting in that, you know, Kana is such a divisive figure. And yet I think your approach, you're not, you're not defending him, but you're all, so you're also not, 
you know, just treating him as, as this sort of demonic figure in the way some right. people do. Right. So, you know, in, in a way, you're right. I mean, thank you for that. I, I you know, I'm not I, I, what I'm saying about Kahana is that, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a progressive leftist. Right. So I'm obviously on the other side. But what I'm saying about Kahana is he is an important part of the American Jewish story. You can't tell the American Jewish story without him. And there's a lot to learn from him in terms of where American Jews are today. So I would say that he is not a heroic figure, but he is a highly significant figure. And I think we ignore him. And by the we, I'm talking about not only American Jews, but you know, people that write about American Jewry. I think that we ignore him at our own peril because it's much easier to be able to work through and work out all of the wrinkles and the difficulties and the complexities of a figure and what he represented if you actually talk about him. But if you actually make believe that he didn't exist, he just he just hides in the attic of your of subconscious and he's just knocking around there. And in a certain sense, he's having more influence on you than you think because you're not even really paying attention. So in Israel, it's a much different situation. In Israel, people are grappling with Kahana openly. They're arguing, they're talking, they're, they're you know, and, and that's a healthy thing because it allows you to really work it out. I think in America, we've tried to erase him. And by doing it, I think we're actually in some way empowering him. And the last thing here, I guess, do you think it's important for people to think about Kahana and his significance, I guess, even, even outside of the context of uh, debates within Jewish culture, do you think there's something that even people outside of Jewish culture can learn from a, a, a study of Kahana? Yeah, I, I mean, I would hope so. And I really do hope that the book is not read just by American Jews or by Israeli Jews. I hope the book is read by Americanists and students and, 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 and scholars of American religion and of American culture, because I think that in a way he represents a very particular American iteration of Jewishness. I mean, he is a quintessentially American figure. And um, because attention, a lot of attention hasn't been paid to him, I think basically um, I want to suggest that, that if you want to understand the way in which Jews are constantly navigating and negotiating their Americanness, right? You have to also understand the way in which they see themselves as some of them as part of the, the, the history of American radicalism on the question of religion and on the question of identity. And just like, you know, you have a, you would have a course that would talk about, uh, you know, the communist movement in the 1920s and and then black nationalism, that should include the Jewish Defense League, right? Because in a certain sense, that is as American as the Black Panthers are. And that is as American as the Ku Klux Klan is. It's, it, I think in a lot of ways at, at core, uh, a lot of the story of Kahana can be seen elsewhere in, in the story of people that are sort of taking a, a survivalist perspective. Definitely, for sure. I mean, he was an American Jewish survivalist. That's exactly what he was, right? So it wasn't about um, religion or practice or belief. It was really about physical 
survival, the physical survival of the Jews in America, how that needs to happen, how that can happen, and what threatens that. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. I I hope uh, there's nothing I missed. If there's anything you want to see in closing and let my listeners know how they can uh, purchase the book. Well, the book can be purchased easily on Amazon. It's published with with University of Princeton, um, Princeton University Press, but it can be bought on Amazon, you know, one click on Amazon. That's, I guess, the best way to do it. Or you can buy it directly from the press. And, um, you know, I'm pretty active on on Facebook. So if people want to want to kind of plug in and see, you know, talking about these kinds of issues and other issues around Israel-Palestine and around other kinds of issues around progressivism and the left, uh, I welcome you to do that. And if people want to send me an email, they can find me on uh, the Dartmouth College Jewish Studies uh, webpage. My email's there. And thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you so much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shaul Magid, author of Mir Kahana, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a one, five, ten, fifteen, and hundred dollar tier. Any amount will help. And of course, at the ten dollar tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout out. So producer's credit shout outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, the Warnerd, the 42 group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, then consider joining those listeners at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.